sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You can write the show. We have the story guys at gmail.com. Been talking a lot on the show recently about really legal matters, right? Like people getting into well, bad yes. contracts. I mean, there's just, there's so much of this in rock and roll history. And uh, a few Where of you people have... get screwed. Yeah, <laughs> right. And you, you would think that like it would quit. Right? Like this, okay, so this happened in the 50s, and maybe a little bit happened in the 60s, and then by the 70s and 80s, like people weren't getting screwed anymore. No, that's not the case. And this sort of repeated pattern uh, made me think about a particular case that is in the somewhat recent past. Today, I want to talk about a certain type of performer. I want to talk about boy bands. <gasps> Eek! Oh, oh no! This is what's going to happen. This is where okay. the nine years really show between us, right? So I just turned forty, I, and you are—I'll be forty-nine by the time some of you hear this. I was in the core demo. I was of the age where all that stuff was was happening around me in high school and in college. You would be in your mid twenties, late twenties, almost at this point. Yeah. And so you had a, a very different attitude about boy bands, I'm sure. Totally different experience, Brian. Were you working in radio at this point with boy bands? Not yet. Yes. Um, so I, I lived in New York City, and I didn't listen to radio at all until I would get into a cab completely hammered, whatever. But I... I didn't listen to Stern. I did like I just had fun. I enjoyed New York. And then I moved to Colorado. And when I was there, I was stunned that I was going to have to go stand underneath the 10 by 10 tent at Mile High Stadium and hand out Britney and and Backstreet Boys magnets because um, <laughs> they were playing together at, the, uh, at, right? at Mile High, like at Denver Bronco, the sure. stadium. Right. Yeah. And then. I just, you know, I'm kind of stunned with the whole experience. And then all of a sudden I see my boss come running at me and he goes, put everything in the van, put everything in the van, put everything in the van. <laughs> and we had to put up the tent and what, and, and then we drove off and, and it was like, you know, and I was like, we were like, Pete, what happened? And he goes, we didn't have any permission to make those magnets or hand them out or anything. And yes. I was like, yeah, wow. So that's people- what happens. That's what happens when you have a rock guy. <laughs> working at a pop station well this is a the thing right guy. like people think speaking of rock guys there's a certain segment of this audience that's like gorilla radio that's a great rage against the machine song no gorilla radio is the shit we we used to do outside football stadiums where we would you know have unauthorized product with our logo on it that we were slinging at people yeah that's gorilla radio and you know we would do that <laughs> back and forth you know if, if you were the there was always this thing in commercial radio too and this you know this is this is business uh, an idea from business, but it applies in radio where they would say, you know, you punch up, you don't punch down. So I always worked for these underdog stations. <laughs> so if you worked for an underdog station, you would just go and mess with the other station, the big station. But the big station, really, it was in bad taste for them to fight back because they had all the ratings and all the money and all the the buys and all that sort of stuff anyway, and all the artists. And so you would just go and cause chaos. So I think you and I yeah. got caught up in doing quite a bit of that over the years. But- uh, there was this there was a station in Denver that went and dumped uh, a truckload of fish right outside <laughs> I don't I don't know if it was the Boulder Theater or the I guess it wasn't the it was like the Boulder Theater in Boulder and that caused a like we all you know there had to be like a you know whatever where the United Nations like they all had to get together and talk to each other <laughs> Because like someone dumped, someone committed a crime and dumped a whole truckload of fucking fish in front of like where someone has a tent playing with the speakers and they're handing out crap and someone just dumps. Yeah, terrible. Oh. But so, so I was, fam- I, I got dumped into it, right, not right, being right. familiar with what the hell was going on around me. Well, except that Britney was kind of famous. I got that. It's just completely clueless. It, it, you know, it changes pop music. The the boy bands in particular change pop music. And when I say the boy bands, we're really talking specifically about the two most successful, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And both of them have in common the same manager. We're going to talk about this. This is one of the things that blew my mind in this story. Oh, 
It's the Ron Perlman, the Lou Perlman. Lou, Ron, <laughs> not Ron Perlman's Perlman. dad. Not Ron the Perlman. Actor. Lou Perlman, right? That was yeah, the manager. Lou, Lou Perlman is this guy. And okay. let me just say this. The bad business bullshit, the unethical players and shocking scandals surrounding the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, uh, it is on par with the stuff we've been talking about around Sharon Osbourne and Don Arden or Tony DeFries and Alan Klein. And, and Peter Grant, to a lesser extent, we have like hit all these nasty manager craziness. I, I know we're like, in like this, this, this is so like much a, fun. It's like a mini series of bad managers and terrible lawsuits. But I, I'm telling you, dude, I mentioned Tony DeFries as a comparison here again purposefully uh, yeah. because we spent a lot of time on that episode defining the term impresario. Remember that? <laughs> the etymology is always everyone's favorite segment uh, on this the show. The definition of terms. Uh, and that word is very apt here again. Lou Perlman was both figuratively and literally, we're, we're going to talk about this, the sixth member of both NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. But this is an absolutely fascinating story, and it all starts and sort of ends not with music, but with aviation. Man, I'm so stoked. I have no idea what's happening. And well, no one else does either. I, I got I got sort of excited when I started working on this because I was like, I know that the one blind spot you purposely have is around the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Like I know that you're like, we're we're great friends. And I know that you know almost everything about everything, except you just have this big black spot around better than Ezra and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Well, I know the better I know a couple better than Ezra's songs. I made a better than Ezra joke <laughs> stuffing better than Ezra CDs into bags at CMJ in fucking New Orleans, which is where they're from. Which is where they're from, yeah. Uh, I said, I, I said, you know what's better than Ezra? Everything. That was my joke. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a big better than Ezra fan. I've probably told the story before about working at a radio station when Kevin from Better Than Ezra walked in looking for a copy of R&R Magazine. Uh, which is a thing people used to care about, and you know couldn't just look it up yeah. on the internet. And and I I was the only person in the in this damn radio station that immediately recognized him by sight. And I'm flipping out in the back, and I'm like, that's Ke-. and I'm I'm young. I'm like an intern at this point. I'm like Kevin from Better Than Esther's in the building, and everyone's like, better than what? But uh, anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Let's talk about aviation for a second. This is this is insane. Um, before we get going though, a note here about Perlman. There is a ton of rumor and innuendo about him on all fronts, the kind he both liked and the kind that he didn't like. And it's very hard to suss out exactly what is true about this guy and what is fiction, because he was always doing his best to control this narrative. So, so much so, in fact, that Murdoch, he has a memoir that you can still buy. And it came out two decades ago. It is called Bands, Brands, and Billions, My Top Ten Rules for Success in Any Business by Lou Perlman. Oh, I remember this. I didn't read it or anything because it was a dude interesting, but now... By the end of this, you're going to just be shocked that that book exists because, wow, let me just tell you what this guy doesn't do well, and it's it's business, but that's a spoiler. Uh, Okay, so aviation. It goes all the way back to Lou Perlman's childhood. The way he tells it, again, this is him telling this, the way he tells it, that when he was a kid, he had this apartment in Queens, and he fell in love with the idea of being in the sky. He says he fabricated a school assignment where he went to the aviation yard and he told the people that run these blimps up and down that he had to, he was like from the school newspaper or something, to get them to take him into the air. Now, the reason I say this might be all bullshit is... He has this neighbor that he grows up with. His name is Alan Gross. And when things go down with Lou Perlman that we're going to talk about later, Alan Gross becomes uh, the, the, the number one guy that documentary film crews and writers from Vanity Fair want to talk to. And he actually starts an aviation business with Lou Perlman when they are in their uh, young adulthood. And, but they grew up as kids together in the same apartment complex in Queens. And he says, and this is, a, this is a quote from the Vanity Fair piece that I will reference a lot. It is in the show notes. It's from 2007, and it is an amazing piece of journalism. Uh, the stories he tells, speaking of Lou Perlman, the stories he tells, Gross says, they're not about Lou. They're about me. 
He's taken episodes from my life to make them his own. <laughs> oh, wow. This is so much fun. I want to buy the book now. Okay. <laughs> I'm in. Keep going. So I know there's tons more. It, okay. Everything I researched, this gets repeated over and over. People just basically say like, wait, that's, those aren't his stories. Or that's not true. That's, that happened to somebody else. Lots of people call into this question, uh, call to question this thing he said about R. Garfunkel. So Lou Pearlman claimed that R. Garfunkel was his cousin. And mm-hmm. if you go around and, and read about Lou Pearlman, that will often be quoted in the articles. In my research, I couldn't prove or disprove whether or not it was true. I don't really think anybody actually knows whether or not he and Art Garfunkel were related. There's a there's a story that gets told about him getting Art Garfunkel to show up at a birthday party or something when he was a teenager. Um, and people speculated as to whether he really knew him or if he knew somebody that knew him and he pulled a favor or whatever, right? It's like in Shazam when the kid gets Superman to show up at school at the end. It was like that bullshit. But um, it, there's all of these things where people are just left with this. I don't know if this is fact or fiction. But what does seem to be true is that Lou Perlman will emerge and throw a lot of money around in the 1990s building boy band empires but he doesn't come from the money. He had a pretty modest upbringing. So this begs the question, where does he get the money from? Yeah. And that's the first totally fascinating story. The lore is that he wrote a business plan for an aviation business when he was in college, his first semester. And then he acts on it. Again, this sounds like bullshit. I don't know. But yeah, he does actually start an aviation business in the 70s. He ends up calling it Airship Enterprises and he pitches to these big brands that they should use his blimps to advertise. This is... <laughs> I mean, there's even there's even stories, if you dig into the, the really big pieces on him, about him getting some sort of chance to go to Germany with like a guy who built blimps and like learn from him and then come back to the States and start this company. But he does. He starts this actual company and he hires that neighbor of his, that guy, Alan, who he ends up stealing all his stories from. And he, he's, he's a good salesman. Anything you read about Lou Perlman is people, there's something about him that's likable and people sort of jump on to what he's selling. And so he gets a contract. This is 1980. He gets a contract with Jordash. The, the clother? The I, clothing? I, yeah. I need to know if you ever owned any Jordash clothing. Maybe. <laughs> I, I, wait, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out blimp, short ash. Okay, so it's, like, it's advertising. When, it's advertising. When, when is when is it going to burn down? Okay, so did they get any awesome clients? <laughs> so like, I want to hear like what? Tell me now. Jordash like, has a party planned for something they're doing, <laughs> and they want the Jordash blimp. It's like this big high, you know, this big money party. Did, they want the did, Jordash did blimp it, to fly up above it and and circle it, the party. Did it burn to the ground? Okay, well, listen. So <laughs> he sells them a blimp he doesn't have. He doesn't have a blimp, but he's... he Always it, happens. There's so much... <laughs> <laughs> I go in, they're like, I want a blimp, and this bastard doesn't have the blimp. Sells me the blimp, no blimp. Oh, my God, dude. Uh, <laughs> he has to create one. That's that's essentially what happens here, okay? Um let me just. I'm, I don't know what to continue to think about before we get to the boy pants. This is so weird. So, so this is the in the Vanity Fair article, the childhood friend Alan. This is what he says. Uh, Perlman wrangled a used balloon envelope. I don't even know what that means from a California man and hired a New Jersey aluminum contractor to build a frame for it. The blimp was assembled at a naval base in Lakehurst, New Jersey, the same one, I cannot make this shit up, where the German Zeppelin Hindenburg crashed in, <laughs> in flames in 1937. So amazing. There were problems from the beginning, uh, among them the fact that the gold paint the Jordache demanded turned brown after several days in the sun, making oh the blimp gosh. look, in Alan Gross's words, the neighbor, like a giant turd. <laughs> <laughs> so eloquent on its inaugural flight on october 8th 1980 the new jordash blimp floated into the new jersey sky on its way to the new york harbor where it was to circle this promotional party for jordash uh let me let me just read what happened so i am amazingly good at my job on this on this show and i was able to dig up the original newswire article from october 8th 1980 are you ready for this 
Yeah, man, because I know something happened. Okay, go ahead. Lakehurst, New Jersey, October 8th, 1980. A 170-foot-long blimp crashed into some trees on its maiden flight today, shortly after taking off from Lakehurst Naval Air Station on its advertising campaign. <laughs> there were no... Jordash. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture you in Jordash jeans. There were no reports of injuries Crazy. or fire in the 8.40 a.m. mishap. The blimp okay, was, so it didn't catch on fire. Okay, keep the, going. The blimp was resting with its nose and gondola on the ground and its tail up in the pine trees. It was constructed in a giant hangar, which we already learned, uh, where the German Zeppelin Hindenburg crashed in 37, killing 36 people. A, a number of officials from the craft's manufacturer, that's Airship Enterprises Incorporated of New York, that's our boy Lou, Mm-hmm. Uh, were on the scene assessing the damage and would issue a report later in the day. Jordash Jeans Corps has rented the new airship for a publicity campaign. The craft had never been flown extensively. Now, many people involved will say that it was like never really even tested, and that was on purpose. Yeah. Right. Because it wouldn't have passed the test. It was, uh, oh, this says it was taken out for a test flight, but high winds forced it into a hard landing, damaging its landing gear. So, like, it was not air ready. The blimp is smaller than the Goodyear or U.S. Navy blimps and was being piloted by Roy Bellotti, who has also flown <laughs> the Goodyear blimp and a U.S. Navy blimp. Oh, had a good pilot, just not a great blimp. Dude, they painted the damn thing gold. Like, all of this is so ridiculous. Um, what? This, so, so this is from a 1993 Sports Illustrated article about Lou's later blimp success. Yes, he's in Sports Illustrated in 1993, talking about his blimps. About his... Okay. So, what the hell happened, right? Okay, this is what he says in this piece. Uh, It seems that on the side of the blimp that faced the sun, the gold paint had absorbed heat, causing the helium inside to expand unevenly. The blimp started moving in circles and then slowly spiraled toward the ground, finally crashing into the trees, and... just a few hundred yards from the site of the Hindenburg disaster. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. that That's so crazy. And what bad luck. I, I mean, why would you tempt the fates? Why would you be like, like, of all the contracts that he could possibly get, he takes his first one to literally put a blimp on the same property as where the Hindenburg crashed? That just doesn't seem like good juju. Like, what, what, come on. I just can't believe we're going to get the blimps to, I want it that way. It's really going to happen. I want it, I want you to take me there. It's going to take sure. a hot minute, dude. Okay, so all this happens. The most insane part is that this doesn't torch his business. In fact, it may, Murdoch, be why he stays in business. You want to you guess why that might be? Well, he moves somewhere, right? Where there was uh, music no, stuff? No, he will. But the reason this doesn't entirely torch his business is because he had an insurance policy. Oh, well, that, yeah, okay. This is from that Vanity Fair piece. Lou never intended to fly that blimp, asserts his partner in that business, Gross, who says the airship hadn't flown anywhere near the number of practice runs required under federal law. He could have been arrested if it had left the base. Perlman and his insurer ended up in court. Seven years later, a New York jury will award Perlman $2.5 million in damages. Oh, man. Imagine how many Rowenta vacuum cleaners you could buy with that. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> but instead, you. <laughs> but here's the crazy thing he turns it into a legitimate business. He will count as clients in the coming years MetLife, McDonald's, and SeaWorld. And I even read that at one point, he fucking rents a blimp for Pink Floyd. Wow. Like, I I just thought he was... I, I didn't know anything about this pre-stuff so at all. This is fun. New York Post, in 2008, published a timeline of, of Lou Pearlman and sort of his career. And it's it's based on and written by the guy who writes this book that will, that will come up in this conversation called Hit Charade, which is another book about him. And... This piece in the New York Post sequentially lays out his business dealings over several decades and contains a lot of details and dastardly arrangements in the 80s in this pre-music business period. Uh, If you want to dive in, go for it. But for our purposes, just know this. There is a trail of unethical behavior in everything from the stock market to how he talks about and manages his business. But to get to your question, how the hell does this connect to boy bands? 
So there's an early story of him trying to manage some band in New York and doing a bad job. I said that he might have given a blimp or rented a blimp or sold a blimp to Pink Floyd at some point. But the lore is that Lou's obsession with entering the music business starts for real when his aviation company rents a plane to new kids on the block. Okay. This happens in the late 80s. And the story goes that Lou is shocked that these guys could afford to be, you know, could could pay him to, to use this plane. <laughs> and and he asks someone like their sales figures or something or like and they and somebody just rattles off like they've sold this many records and they're worth this much money. And like the story he will cultivate is that at that point he's like, "Oh well, I'm in the wrong business." You know, I mean that bullshit. So, uh, yeah. he literally relocates down the East Coast and into Florida in the early 90s and he starts a company called Transcontinental. And he's but this is actually Okay, this is where it gets it. This is where it gets weird. So he sort of starts this company Transcontinental, but there's been another Transcontinental. And that might have started as early as the 70s. This starts to get really complicated. But he has these companies that he starts bringing investors into while while he is trying to make the boy band thing happen. And some of it starts alongside all of his blimp and aviation uh, aspirations. Wow. So, okay. Just know that that is happening. So he places ads in Florida looking for male singers for a, quote, new kids on the block type singing group. And Florida's a big player in this story. This is something I never realized before. I want to see if you know this. Do you know why Lou would base his operations out of Orlando, Florida? So it could get close to that Miami base. I don't know, man. I don't like really know much about <laughs> music in Florida other than that, you know. So so think about this. Like I when I heard this, I was like, oh yeah, bingo, but I never would have figured this out. Theme parks. Oh, okay. Because well, I get it with that it's an untapped reservoir of hungry, young, aspiring talent without the competition and crush of LA and Hollywood. Most of these future boy band dudes start as theme park entertainers. That's that's where they all were. And with the exception of Timberlake, who was on TV, and J.C. Chazé, they were on Mickey Mouse Club with Britney. But unless unless you were T- uh, Tiffany and you were at the mall, right, right, exactly. But the rest of these guys were literally at, in Disney or in Universal doing the doing those shows, you know, that happened at ten, two, and six or whatever. Wow, so crazy. I mean, the first performance the Backstreet Boys ever do is literally at SeaWorld. And and that, of course, comes after lots of money is spent launching a search to put this group together. Perlman will choose A.J. McLean first from an audition, and then he piecemeals it together because McLean will introduce him to Howie Duro, who, do, who he'd been performing with, and then most of the final five have loose connections. There's a Kentucky connection because Kevin Richardson has a cousin who lives in Kentucky named Brian Luttrell, and he invites Brian Luttrell. Brian Luttrell gets on a plane, like gets the call from Kevin, goes to the airport that night, gets on a plane, flies to Florida, and is asked into the band that week. They come together, they perform at these theme parks, and then Lou gets them new kids on the blocks, old managers. So like he always had a plan. He's like, I can do this. I can, I can make money. If these guys can make this sort of money, singing and dancing, I can like orchestrate this. Does he do it for the publishing? Oh, great question. We'll, we'll get there. So <laughs> they, the first thing he does, and I always forget this, he launches these guys in Europe. Like, I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. yeah, the whole thing is that he can't launch them in the States at first. And he, he can't get a record deal. Do you know, have you heard this story about why they why they don't get signed to Mercury in 1993, the Backstreet Boys? No, no. Okay. So when you think about this, right, you they they land squarely about 97 to 99, right? That's the that's the heyday and into the 2000s. But they the boy band thing really starts in those last few years of the 90s. Well, they're active in 93, and they're huh. getting attention from record labels. Now, there's this story, and I, I kind of think it's bullshit. I, I've looked around trying to find irrefutable proof of this, 
And the only thing I can find, it goes back to that Tyler Gray hit charade book that I mentioned already. And he credits this story to Lou, which makes me think it's bullshit. But here's, here's the story. Lou claims that Mercury pulled out their record label, their, their deal that they were going to offer the Backstreet Boys because John Mellencamp threw a fit and said he was going to leave their label. <laughs> which is hilarious to me. I'm just trying to imagine him like smoking a cigarette, like with cowboy boots on, but like, no, nah, we ain't having those. Dress, dressed like he is on Scarecrow, like where he's leaning yeah. up against the fence in that leather jacket vest thing yeah. that he's wearing. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, my favorite, that's absolutely my favorite Melon Camp record. But yeah, like smoking a cigarette with cowboy Hell boots yeah. on, uh, saying, no, nah, man, we ain't having those singing and dancing boys on my record label here. I'm leaving. So that sounds great. I mean, that's, what a crazy thing to think about. <laughs> I love it. I love that that might have been a thing, but I do totally find it hard to believe. Whether or not it's true, we all know what does eventually happen in the U.S., right? The Backstreet Boys end up exploding in popularity in the 97. They'll take off. And I, I don't, this, is, this is crazy to me. This is the other thing I didn't know. I mentioned this at the top, that Backstreet Boys and NSYNC have a common manager. But, and this might be common knowledge. I actually did a straw poll with some women over at my house the other day I said, like, who were sort of in that age bracket, and I said, what do you know about Lou Pearlman? What do you know about Backstreet Boys? What do you know about NSYNC? Just if I asked you these things. And they all, they didn't have the details. They sort of had a rough understanding, maybe where I was before I started looking into this. So he has this massive success with the Backstreet Boys. And he, there is a guy on this on this documentary, there's a documentary I used pretty heavily as a source here. It was actually produced by Lance Bass from NSYNC. It's called The Boy Band Con, the Lou Perlman story. It is on YouTube mm-hmm. for free. It was actually produced by YouTube. And I, I highly recommend it. Lance Bass is a charming motherfucker. Like, I just want to hang out. But they get this guy on camera who's another one of Lou Perlman's biographers. And the guy says that Lou actually says to him at one point, well, you know, Coke has to have Pepsi. And if I don't own Pepsi, somebody else will. So he actually goes out and creates uh, NSYNC to rival Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Do you like, do you understand roulette, right? He's just adding another chip. You know, he's just making it easier. Like it's, if you think about the the share of like who, what kind of, who, who's digging that music and who's buying that? It's like, okay, well, you just figure a way to kind of split it up and make more money. Well, yeah, but then he also plays them against each other. So it's not just that oh. he creates another group. It's that he then is going to them and, and saying that the other group is talking shit. Oh, that's... Because I wish, like, do you I wish I'd been into Teen Magazine to read about all that stuff. It I sounds was, like so much fun. That's what I was going to say. Do you remember what those Teen Magazines looked like in the late 90s? And no, you don't because you're in New York nah. getting high. Right. So yeah. there were these <laughs> magazines where they would put in sync on, you know, it's like in sync versus Backstreet Boys. And it would, you know, this member of in sync versus this wow. member. And it was like always a rivalry. And they didn't. I mean, they were very confused. And in this documentary, they're like, we didn't understand what was happening. And we also, like, the, <laughs> the guys that didn't sync are like, we were really scared of the Backstreet Boys <laughs> because their manager is, like, constantly telling them that they're, like, out to get them and talking shit. And it's all made up. And he owns both parts. I mean, this is brilliant and absolutely depraved. And it maniacal. Is, it yes. is maniacal. Yeah. And... You you may or may not know a lot about the overall lifestyle thing that comes with these boy bands. Like, do you have any perception of what it was like to be in a boy band in the '90s and sort of like how that was all marketed as to as what their lives were like? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There was. I remember when it started happening, and I was like, "Oh, everyone's gonna love it." You know. Well, it's like there's no way around it. I, like I get it. It's manufactured in such a terrific, smart way. But but it's man. Okay, that's it. You're totally right. It's manufactured openly. Right. So like he yeah, he puts them in a house and has them live together and puts them through a boot camp with choreographers, voice lessons, tutors. Lance Bass says that they would practice dance moves for hours in, in his blip hanger. I'm telling you, aviation is always hanging around in this whole story. 
and they talk in this documentary. They're all like, that was the hottest fucking place I've ever been in my life. And they would go in there for hours and practice dance moves. And so they also all talk that during this period, Lou was Captain Funtime, like a big kid who made sure they got to play through them parties, let them use the pool. I mean, it was just like hijinks and goofiness. And he had this attitude of like, you're working hard and you should, you should be able to play hard. And I point this out because it becomes important to the story that the thing that he does so brilliantly at first is he takes away their day-to-day concerns. So when he brings them into a, gives them a place to live, feeds them three, four, five meals a day, allows them access to crazy toys and opportunities and entertainments, they don't have to think about anything, right? And and remember where they came from. I told you, they were sweating their asses off in theme park parking lots. Mm -hmm. Sometimes working at more than one place, two or three jobs trying to keep an apartment in Orlando, and all that goes away. So these dudes, as they all of a sudden start to become these pop icons aren't really thinking about money which sounds crazy when we say it out loud but it's so right yeah but if you think about it from their perspective they're young most of them are late teens early 20s and all shit's taken care of everything's taken care of and they're not these hard-boiled la you know la new york people right they're like midwestern kids that have gone down or or florida kids who have come up to Orlando to take these jobs. And, and you know, you're usually not taking a theme park job because you think you're going to be in the movies. You're taking a theme park job because you want to be in entertainment, but you have more realistic expectations. So this is like a, a huge, crazy opportunity for them. And so yeah. he, he takes them out to eat all the time. There's this, In the doc, they talk about his favorite restaurants on the coast, like each coast. He's like, when we're in LA, we go to this one. When we're in New York, we go to this one. And then they start going on the road. And when they go on the road... They get a $35 per day allowance. Now, I know you you laugh, and that sounds ridiculous, but remember, they don't have anything to spend money on. If they want anything, they just ask for it, and it's given to them. And so they're not thinking about it. And so finally, there's this famous story, when you start looking into this, that, and this is specifically an NSYNC story, which does actually happen after the Backstreet Boys. But all the guys in NSYNC are told by Lou, hey, invite your parents, invite your friends. We're going to this fancy restaurant. Check presentation. You're all getting your first big checks. So they've done a tour or something at this point. And so they're like, they have no idea. Right? Because they haven't been thinking about money. Right. They haven't gotten paid at all. And and so they're like, oh my God, this check is going to be insane. So they're like thinking in their brain, like, try not to think about the number, but then you can't think, not think about the number, right? And so they go to this crazy fancy ass place to eat. They all get their food and they're sitting there and then the checks come out and he has them oh. each hand a check and it's passing around and they're all holding the checks and they go to open them and they're for $10,000. Oh, and, and like their families were there? Yeah. And they like, Lance Bass says he thought it was going to be for a million dollars. Yeah. And he opened it and it was for 10 grand. And this is where everything starts to fall apart for NSYNC. This is a quote uh, from Lance Bass in that documentary. Wow. I didn't want to seem ungrateful because at that point, 10 grand, sure, it's a lot of money. But I went back to the hotel room that night and it just hit me. I was so disappointed. I ripped up the check. I knew something was wrong. Did they have any friends that were attorneys to kind of look into this Dude, immediately? So that, it's funny that you asked me that because this is like a thing in the documentary where they're like, we didn't know who to call. And we couldn't afford to call anybody because we only had 50 grand among us, right? Like, for, that's nothing in the scheme of things. And so J.C. Chazé has an uncle who's a lawyer. So they call him. <laughs> the uncle, and I don't know what law he practiced, probably not contract law, but this fucking uncle is quoted as saying, this is the worst contract I've ever read in my entire life. Gosh. I mean, what a drag. And so I can't, Okay, I can't wait. So, uh, what, so- did, what happens now? Well, I alluded to this earlier. What they discover when they go through this is that Perlman has literally made himself the sixth member of the group. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah, okay, yeah, very literally. So, and he he had done this to the Backstreet Boys. So he gets one sixth of the band's profit, but he also gets the management fees, and 
like at one point in the documentary, one of them says, and this was the time where we all learned the word recoupable. <laughs> it's like no one taught us that word before. Oh my gosh. And so all these things that had been spent on them, which they're not keeping track of, they just get told like, well, we spent this much money on you. So we got to take all that back. Right. So how does this all pan out? I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes. I, it's funny too, because we're like 30 minutes into this and I know that you think that we're near the end. We are at the very beginning. Like, <laughs> this is the very beginning of the story. So, NSYNC's attorneys find this loophole in their contract with Perlman's label, Transcontinental Records. That becomes important. Right. Uh, just remember that name. And Transcontinental Records and RCA and BMG, who are all parentage there, uh, they will hit the band with a $150 million breach of, breach of contract lawsuit in an effort what? to stop them from moving and trying to take the name from them doesn't work out in 1999 NSYNC, Perlman, <laughs> and BMG Entertainment reach a settlement. It will include giving NSYNC the right to control their name and as a result, Perlman is ousted as their manager. Oh my God, dude. What the hell? So that, is, so that escalated very quickly. This is how it goes down with NSYNC, but with the Backstreet Boys, it's different. So Brian Luttrell, the Kentucky boy, and this is ironic to me because he's the Kentucky boy in the band and he's the most business savvy. And he's like, something is not adding up. Because at some point they get a payout, their payout's different. He really, really got some real audacity as things progressed. Because with the Backstreet Boys, he he gives them three hundred grand, like three hundred grand total, I think, between the five of them. But still, okay. a lot more than ten grand a piece. And they they like are like no 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 no. Let's do some math. And they file this lawsuit saying they've only gotten three hundred thousand dollars since nineteen ninety three, and they file this in I think ninety eight, and. Latrell goes first by himself. Can you imagine that? Like you and I are yeah. in this boy band together, and and I'm like, bro, I'm gonna I'm gonna sue the guy who made this all happen for us. And you're like, nope, I'm not doing it. Good luck. And then slowly, everybody comes yeah. along. Most of okay. them come along, and Perlman gets ousted as their manager. But they have to do this settlement where he gets thirty million and gets to continue earning off of them. That's the settlement they end up with him. Gosh. Oh, man, what a douche. He's like the douchiest of all the managers, the douchiest of the douchey <laughs> managers. We haven't talked about anyone this terrible. Just to be for artists, like not giving a shit about the artist. Well, and, and those aren't his only artists. I mean, we've only talked about NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, but the thing that we're missing here is, and I've just avoided this because it gets really confusing, but this initial success that he has with Backstreet Boys allows him to do all sorts of shit. And he'll continue to work with other acts. So there's a moment in the documentary that I mentioned where someone points out that people knew he'd screwed over Backstreet Boys and sync Because this is all done by the end of the 90s. And, yeah. And, and he's still a big force in the industry for at least a couple more years. And they'll still sign. Because the success they saw is overwhelming. Like, think about, and this is, I know, harder for you because you were not of the age where this was everywhere, but, like, there was nothing bigger in the late 90s to be, you know, teenage or college age than the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and, and Britney Spears and that whole movement, right? It was, who, it, you didn't have to like it. It was just everywhere. So he managed other people or created Dude, other people, right? He, he, so he makes O-Town on TV. So remember, they give him a TV show. ABC oh. and MTV create oh. this making of the oh. band. I thought, oh, I didn't know that. I just forgot. Okay. Yeah, so O-Town, I want it all or nothing at all. Yeah, that's O-Town. Okay. Uh, they, Ashley Parker Angel is in that group, and he is in the documentary, and he's he's he also I would totally get a beer with. Uh, I'll tell you this. This is not in my notes, but I, I just need to say it. So Aaron Carter is in the documentary. Nick Carter is yeah. not. And this documentary was 2019, and Aaron Carter died, what, last year? Yeah. And we should have seen that coming. Aaron yeah. Carter in that documentary is hard to watch. He is hard to watch. Like, right. everything about him, the way he presents himself, the stuff he says, it is rough. That's the one thing I'm like, Lance, maybe you should have taken that out. But, uh, you know, I mean, Aaron Carter will sue him. That happens. Aaron yeah. Carter sues Lou Pearlman when he's 14. 
Oh my gosh. But there weren't, no one else like sued him, right? Everybody sued him. Dude, I'm not kidding. Out of all of the acts, all of the acts he managed, there's only two that didn't sue him. Oh, shut the front door. No, I, I, dude, totally. He had uh, LFO. You might remember that group. They had a big hit yeah. that defined a summer for me in the late 90s. Uh, he tries this rap group that I had totally forgotten about until I started uh, doing this research called Smiles and South Star. And now I was like, oh, dude, we used to play that on the radio back in the day. Um, oh. He had he tried like a Latin group, a girl group, a rap group. Like he tried everything, and most of them just weren't very successful. There were some that were sort of like there's a group called Take Five that was sort of around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there that he he has this girl group called Innocence, and I think it's the only girl group he ever has. Um, but yeah, he sues like at some point they all sue him but here's the crazy shit this is not the end of the story in other episodes when we talk about tony defreeze <laughs> or we talk about sharon and ozzy like it's about the time we wrap up okay this is the just the skin of the onion the outer layer because this all ends where it started lou loved the idea of controlling destinies and creating a product that sold but it was sort of not actually about the boy bands or the music like, he, he wanted to do it because he was interested and he saw it as money, but it wasn't because he loved the music. The weird thing is, he had a pretty good ear. Like, he could figure this out. But I think it was all sort of a math problem for him. What was this all? Like, it wasn't really about music. Was there just something that he want, liked to do better? Well, here's, or he here's, was trying what he, to do? here's what he told people it was about. He told people it was about aviation. <laughs> Remember, I told you that was going to come back around. I mean, really, it was all about money. But the business he was running to make insane amounts of it centered around inv- aviation. So we've got to go way back to the beginning. This all is right, it. So walk me through wherever <laughs> we're going because I'm. I need a cane. This, yeah, you do. This is insanely complicated. Uh, but that's how these sorts of schemes survive by being impossible to understand. So. I've dug through the stuff. I'm going to try to simplify the best I can. That New York Post timeline is super helpful. It's in the show notes if you want to follow along. Uh, but here we go. Basically, Lou has these two companies. I mentioned this earlier. Transcontinental Airline Travel Services and Transcontinental Airlines, Inc. I think one of them services as early as the 70s. He has Airbus International, and that goes public in 85. He meets a guy who teaches him about penny stocks, and he's out of money because he's waiting on the $3 million settlement from the insurance company for the Jordash blimp. And <laughs> this guy teaches him how to play the stock market, and so he, he goes public, and that's how he keeps himself afloat until he gets that settlement. And that's with Airbus International, which he will eventually shut down. But this, I whole- want to make sure everybody does. Everyone remember the Jordash blimp? Just checking in. <laughs> All right, just want to check in. All right, sorry, Brian. I want to make sure everybody's with us. I'm trying to. I'm trying to tie these shoestrings together. All right. Um, oh, so oh. I, I, here's what happens. He this whole time, <laughs> this whole time, in the background, he has on paper this other company that specializes in private planes. He has a fleet of planes, is what he tells people. And he's bringing investors into this business, and he's telling them that he has these aircraft. And he also hits them with this scheme where he says that he can get them something instead of like the normal way dividends would pay. He can set up their investment in something called an investor's employee investment savings account which isn't a real thing. So there's <laughs> I was something to ask you what that is. There's something like that. Uh, that it's like, so his fake version of it is E I S a. And like the real one is like E S a I or something like it's very close. And it's one of those things where like, if you're not paying attention, you would, you would not notice if you were just me or you being pitched by some guy, we would be like, Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And, and the brilliance of it, and you read this when you read about it, is that like he didn't promise insane better dividends, just slightly better dividends. It went up like a percent or two. But he's like, yeah, I can do this thing, and, and this is, I'll maximize it here, because it's very believable. And so he has stuff. When people ask him, and they're going to invest, and they want to see, are you certified by the FDIC, and have all these other financial institutions said you're legit, he has paperwork 
that says they have. Like he will he will have them come to his office and he will show them these things that are in frames or whatever and everyone's like, okay, that's fine. It's all fake. And there's this guy who's his partner <laughs> named Julian Bencher who, who sells his part of the blimp business in the early 90s. Uh, well, Lou sells part of his interest in the blimp business to Julian along with a chunk of this transcontinental airlines business. And he gets this guy to help him fund the money it's going to take to launch the boy band endeavors. But unbeknownst to anyone, he's taking the money from his investors in the airline business that doesn't actually exist. And he is using it to start the boy band stuff. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to hear. Well, how this is. Here's, here's the crazy thing. So much fun. Murdoch, when he hits Pater with his boy band idea, he has the opportunity where he could go back and cover his tracks because he's got the cash to do it. Or he could leverage the assets he has, which I should point out is access to the biggest stars in the world, Hmm. and he could keep this whole thing going, and he could level it up. And that's what he does. He starts using the success of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC to entice people to invest in Transcontinental. <laughs> and he will slowly expand Transcontinental to include record label, plus the airline, eventually a film and music studio, talent and travel agencies, real estate, and restaurants. At some point, he has a string of TCBY yogurt places. I mean, Froger used to be the stuff, man. (laughs) But here's the maniacal. We said this earlier. You said maniacal. I think that's a great word. Here's the maniacal part of this. He, the bands serve a double purpose for this endeavor. Being near them is an incentive for some of the people, right? So he'll like let investors meet them. He'll get them VIP tickets. He'll let their daughters come and hang out, you know, whatever, right? Whatever's going to get people to feel important and generous. The crazy poisonous thing that they serve to do is legitimize them. If the guy who created the two biggest bands in the world at the time shows up to you and says, hey, I've got this unbelievable investment opportunity, it seems pretty feasible. Yeah, and he's doing it that well. You, you, you pretty, know what I'm saying? Like pretty brilliant, it, yeah. Yeah, it's not that it, like just a rando is coming up telling you, like, no, trust me, trust me. You're like, the proof's in the pudding. He's got the two biggest acts in the world. How could he not be like, you know, yeah, maybe he's getting some crazy returns, but he must be a really good businessman. It all adds up. Gosh, man, that's great. It, yeah, it's it's nauseating. But, but it's I mean, maniacal. you want to make you want to make some money um, like who are you going to choose? Maybe the most jaw dropping moment of both the Vanity Fair piece and the documentary is when the old neighborhood friend I keep bringing up, Alan, yeah. shows the reporter Polaroids of the transcontinental jets in the air. So he's like, have you seen these? These were the these were the photos that were getting passed around. He's like, yeah. And he goes, you notice how on the backside, you can't see like that back part of the plane? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, you know why that is? The guy goes, no. And he goes, because that's where Lou's thumb is. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, and then he pulls out the plane, like a model plane that fits in the palm of your hand. And he's like, this is that plane. He's like, he just took pictures of this model plane up again. Like he took them from an angle where it looks like it's crazy because he's holding the plane in the documentary. And then he shows you the picture. and The picture looks like an airplane flying in the air. And it's just like he just took a picture of holding it out so that it looked like it was coming in. So it's a Ponzi scheme. A hundred percent. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea that the guy that uh, managed the Backstreet Boys and Instinct were, uh, were, <laughs> did that. Oh Dude, my gosh, before Bernie, before Bernie Madoff, this is the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. Wow. Benchler, the partner, figures it out first. The guy I mentioned a few minutes ago. He tries to get some of his assets out of the company and the guy's like, oh yeah, my German partner, like, isn't giving me what I need or whatever. And he keeps like blaming it on the German guy. So Julian Benchler flies to Germany and goes to this guy and is like, Hey, why aren't you giving it? And the guy's like laughs at him. He's like, dude, you got this all backwards, man. I don't have anything to do with any of this. And he says, my stomach dropped. 
Like he's like, at that point, I was like, something is crazy. Eventually, the banks start getting weird vibes. That this guy, yeah. this guy who figures it out, Benchler, will. Here's the other maniacal thing: is he'll reach a settlement with Lou and then sign an NDA. And so, so by the strange. time he's talking to Vanity Fair, Lou is in jail. Spoiler alert! And so I think at that point he breaks the silence. But up to that point, he hasn't. He he doesn't tell anyone. Back to the Vanity Fair piece. In 2003, with his cash crunch growing worse by the month, Lou began taking out bank loans. In the next three years, in 13 separate loan packages, Perlman will pledge every asset he possesses in return for cash. Ah, oh, it's so gross. And we haven't even talked about the stuff that he has, but like at one point, he rents this massive office complex in downtown Orlando to be part of his empire. He has this amazing mansion that he lets all these boy bands hang out in and it's like and they talk about it in the documentary at one point about like how it, it's just they call it like an amusement park or like a playland like there's just crazy stuff to do there's a movie theater there's a swimming pool there's like a life-size r2d2 like that thing keeps coming up that apparently he has one of those he spent all this money on this <laughs> he leverages it and gets 156 million dollars but really what it allows him to do is have a little more time yeah, so he's just cashing everything in and running out of money. Yeah, well, and let's just remind folks, a Ponzi scheme is basically you're you're paying out the money you're getting in. It, you know, it's not so like you're giving the new investors or you're giving the old investors the new investors money. And so it really starts to unwind because of a guy named Joseph Chow. Joseph Chow had been investing 14 million bucks with Lou. Wow. Much, oh my gosh. Much to the chagrin of his family. His wife and his daughters were not happy about this because they didn't trust Lou. But Joseph Chow was hardcore about it. And he was like, nope, this guy is my guy. Well, Joseph Chow dies. Oh, well, okay. And the jig is up. And his family tries to get access to the cash. The Vanity Fair reporting goes into major detail on this, so I'm not going to go through it. But if you want to dig in, find it in the show notes. It's a fascinating deception drama. Basically, just know that once people start digging around and lose finances, things start to get weird. And one of the first pieces to fall, this is like so out of t television, is when they try to get legal documents from his accounting firm. It's called Cohen and Siegel. And they realize that Cohen and Siegel does not exist. <laughs> it's hard not to... Like bad guy, like heel wrestler, like almost want to root for this guy for being the worst possible fucker. Dude, you're you're not gonna believe how this story ends. Okay. We haven't even here before we get to the end of this story. There's worse things, right? We haven't even talked about the sex scandal stuff. Ah. So it, it's it's crazy because and I think part of it has to do with timing, because it's early two thousands. I think the machoism around straight men. Was a, was a different thing twenty years ago than it is now, right? Not, nah, it's because nah, you got for this guy, he's got a pool, and yeah. like you know, when you have pool parties all the time, you know what's up, you know what's going down. Well, I mean, you know what's up if you're having pool parties and you a whole bunch of single people. Here's here's the Vanity Fair article again. Despite <laughs> innuendo, so terrifying. That, despite innuendo that dogged him for years, Perlman faced the prospect of public allegations only a handful of times. Once, an unidentified male singer. There may have been more than one. Made it clear to Perlman that he was about to go public. Perlman's longtime attorney confirms that he turned the matter over to the FBI. Uh, no charges were ever brought. The boy or boys never went public. And Mason, despite filing suit against Perlman for unpaid legal fees, says he never heard a single reliable count of improper behavior on Perlman's part. That's the other thing. There is a funny moment in this uh, documentary where like everybody who has defended him at some point or worked for him is like, dude, I never got paid. <laughs> And now I'm pissed. Like they talked to the guy who was like his criminal defense guy or like, no defended him against the Backstreet Boys in all those lawsuits. And then at the end he's like, and then I never fucking got paid. So now fuck yeah. that guy. Um, yeah. But here, I mean, there are lots of stories, but they've never really come up to the surface. And even in the documentary, all of the famous guys are like, oh, no, I never did anything weird to me. Like, I heard some stuff, but he never did anything to me. I mean, even Lance, who is who for a long time during that period was closeted and is now openly gay, he 
you know, he sort of pushes it away. Well, no, no, no. You know, I mean, I don't know. I like heard he maybe did some stuff and like, yeah. But then there's like things that I found in the research where at some point a couple of the Backstreet Boys mentioned that like the first time they ever watched pornography was with Lou. Oh, it's super gross. The guy from the guy from LFO has this whole story about how Lou told him he came up with this like legit business reason to touch his penis. Like, it is a bizarre story. And then there is the most damning story in most of what I saw was from one of the girls in Innocence, which is, I think, the only female act that he ever works on. And it's not a direct attack from Lou, but what she claims happens is that Lou has a tanning bed in which he keeps cameras, and no one knew about it. And so... They would go in and strip nude and get into the tanning bed, and he would show the videotapes to the boy bands of the girls getting into the tanning beds. Well, so Lou sucks and is gross and is the worst manager we've ever talked about. Dude, I haven't told you the end of this story. (laughs) No. And what, what people don't know is I sent you notes, and this isn't in the notes, so you have no idea what's coming. So as all this starts to crumble, guess what Lou does? Uh, Does he leave the country? He fucking goes on the lamb, dude. He. Oh, he. So he does go on the lamb. Okay. He jets and the fucking FBI can't find him. And he's gone for a while and they're looking and they're looking. And this this is the most unbelievable story I've ever heard. So. At some point, they, I mean, I think they like make it public that they can't find him. And there's this guy who goes on vacation to Bali, just like a normal dude. And he gets to Bali and he's like, I'm pretty fucking sure that's Lou Pearlman. And so he, wow. he calls the FBI and they are like, getting and they say in one of the things i saw they talked to somebody from the fbi at this time and she's like what you got to understand is that we had a lot of people trying to give us information about lou perlman when we made this public and it was mostly all bullshit like it was just like i think he'd be here i think you know it's like just i think that's pretty typical when they open searches like that right so they're filtering through all this. So they just get some random dude who's on vacation with his wife in Bali who's like, dude, Lou Perlman is here. And they're like, yeah, no fucking way. But they send some agents. And this is like on day one or two of his vacation. And like a few days later, he goes to brunch and Lou is at the same place again. And so he takes a picture with his fucking vacation camera of Lou Perlman sitting here eating breakfast. And... Meanwhile, the FBI guys have just gotten into Bali and they go to get breakfast. Oh, it's so great. And he sends this picture to the FBI agent he's talking to. He's like, fine, I'm sending you this picture. I guess he does it over the computer. He sends her the picture and she pulls open the picture and the two FBI guys are in the back of the restaurant in the picture. <laughs> like they don't oh know. God. They don't know they're in the restaurant with Lou. <laughs> And he's in there. They're photobombing he's, him. He's, they're photobombing him by accident. He's eating breakfast in this fucking restaurant. It's like the worst person in the world getting popped so awesome. And it's just this random guy on vacation who's like, listen, this has gone on long enough. And 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 bless his heart for knowing who that, that terrible person was. Oh, my God. And calling dude, the cops. That is like, there is no better way to end that story than <laughs> with that little detail. So, Oh, you better believe it. I mean, he, he gets the longest sentence in history for fraud, I think, which is only 25 years. But he'll die in prison in 2016. So, there you go. <laughs> if you're still with us, if you're still floating yeah. on this raft, good God. And hey, if... For everybody that's on this raft, before we let everybody go, let's let's play. I want it that way. Oh, dude, yeah, that's what but, we'll do. We'll we'll jump out of this uh, out of this episode with um, just you. Don't, you don't want to introduce it any further? Yeah, I'm just like it's not the Backstreet Boys. 
All right. Well, remember, we are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to get involved in the show. Uh, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories uh, is also on Instagram, just backslash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You can find us on Patreon. If you enjoyed this chaos, uh, please throw us a little money. We'd really appreciate it. It's patreon.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. And until next time, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. I say that I want